we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Northern Power Women podcast for your career and your life no matter what business you're in hello how are you I'm Sam Walker and here we are together again for another episode episode 16 of the Northern Power Women podcast invent your own knickers thank you so much for listening Now, on the way, we'll go to Halifax to hear a fantastic panel recorded at the beautiful Peace Hall, where we tried and failed to get a Britain's Got Talent style audition going. It's true, but I can't sing, so please don't ask before you get to that next point. Someone phone the orchestra, tell them not to come. While we basked in the Yorkshire sunshine, I also caught up with the chief exec of the Peace Hall, Nicola Chance-Thompson. What a woman. It's an interview full of inspiring stories and advice. I think that without, if you don't take risks, nothing ever happens. Um, if you look at all the great inventions, all the big game changers, what did they do? They took a risk. And it's easy to play safe. But then what are we doing? And in Ask the Hive, our listener is at a career crossroads and needs some help in choosing which way to jump. At the point I am in my career, I would go with my heart, but I am quite advanced in my career and I have taken head decisions, so I quite understand that. But first, a woman I am seriously starting to believe has a Hermione Granger-style magic watch. I mean, how else does she fit everything she does into a single day? It's the one and only, the founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche, MBE. It's episode 16 and we're in Halifax at the multi-award winning Peace Hall, hosted by Chief Exec Nikki Chance-Thompson, who is also our Person with Purpose this month. So thank you so much to Rue, Adam and Zora for taking part this month. And please take the time to go over and visit the Peace Hall. It's amazing. Um, We have a date for Northern Power Futures in Newcastle. It's the 10th and the 11th of February at the Boiler Shop. Northern Power Futures is our new campaign discussing the future of the North for and by those people who will be working, living and leading it. We're so grateful to EY and Vodafone for sponsoring these two groundbreaking festivals. We'll be considering what science and tech 20 years from now looks like, as well as how we manage our 100-year life Good heavens. Uh, We're plugging in sessions around growing your community, financial independence and being a counsellor, as well as being able to engage with the work of some of our great expo organisations. And we're thrilled that Co-op Bank, Mediacom, YBS, Liverpool Football Club, Innovate Hair, Synexus will all be taking place, just to name but a few. Plus, Metro Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, will be launching a new career campaign on the 23rd of November in Manchester at the opening at Northern Power Futures. Thanks so much for all of the nominations for the, so far for the Northern Power Women Awards. We've had 58% from male advocates, 48% from the North East, and Outstanding Entrepreneur and The Future List are so far the most popular categories. Please keep them coming in. And remember, we're all about celebrating all genders, 
all sectors, all socioeconomic groups. So please, please, please recognise and celebrate a fantastic role model today. The Northern Powerhouse Minister has been out touring the North again and vocally advocating for Northern Power Women. We'll be driving the agenda with the Minister from the North, so stay connected on all our social feeds for more details. We've got two live podcast recordings coming up in October. On the 10th of October, we're at Clark Wilmot in Manchester, sponsored by Women in Law, led by our power lister, Sally Penny. And in on the 18th of October, we'll be over in Newcastle, where the Northern Health Science Alliance will be sponsoring the podcast. So we're looking forward to some lively conversation, both east and west of our north. Check out the website for more details. I'm thrilled to be listed on the Financial Times Champions of Women in Business 2018 at number 59 with some impressive global female role models. And some of our power lists are on there too. Sue Douthwaite from Santander, Sue Fox from M&S and Joanna Santitan from EY. As ever, please, 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 please keep the conversation going and look forward to seeing you next month. Thanks so much. Thank you so much to Simone. Do make sure you keep up to date with everything she's up to on Twitter at North Power Women. And you can find us on Facebook too. Now to this month's discussion panel and a big thank you to our hosts, the Peace Hall in Halifax. Oh my goodness me. Welcome, welcome to episode 16. Yes, woo. How have we made it this far? It's wonderful stuff. Episode 16 of the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker. Thank you so much for coming along today. If you are here, just turn to your left. Look out that window. It's absolutely stunning. We are looking at a tree-filled hillside here in Halifax. It's stunning. And we're looking at it from an absolutely spectacular building. It is the multi-award-winning Peace Hall. And what an incredible building it is. Think of St Mark's Square in Venice, bustling with people and music and great food and a little bit of gin. It is a marvellous place to be. So thank you so much to Peace Hall for welcoming along today. And thank you, as ever, to our three brilliant panellists. Let me introduce you to Rue Ashworth. She's the founder of Ideas by Rue, a consultant, non-executive director, collaborator, been working in marketing for 25 years, helping agency with great creative thinking at brand and marketing and consumer levels and helping businesses focus on where they've come from and where they want to go to. Also a big hello and welcome to Zora Zankudi. She's the Director for Public Services at Calderdale Council. Joined uh, four years ago as Head of Customer Services and became Director for Public Services in 2018. I think it's fair to say, Zora, your, your role kind of goes from the sublime to the maybe not so sublime cultural and sports services you cover, of course, and then waste and recycling. It's got to be done. I guess, you know, that's an important part of what you do. I also understand you founded the Calderdale Council Workplace Choir. Is this true? It's true, but I can't sing. So please don't ask before you get to that next point. <laughs> Some, phone the orchestra, tell them not to come. I thought they were, they were just about to do that. Thank you. You're very welcome as well, Zora. And a big hello to Adam Rowe, who's the head of development here at the multi-award winning Peace Hall. You've trained me well already. Uh, Adam uh, actually graduated as a mature student in 2004 after working in other sectors. He's now took over the role in the charity sector, led to a 14 year career and has gone on to develop numerous opportunities to tackle some of the big social issues of the day. Nice to see you, Adam. Thank you very much indeed. Please welcome our panel. So as 
as ever, let's start proceedings. And we're going to talk about three questions, three questions that perhaps you've been talking about at work or with your friends, questions that have been kind of milling around on social media and in the world of news this month as well. And we want to hear from you. We've got audience with us here today, but if you're listening to the podcast now, get in touch, tweet us at North Power Women, email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Ta. Right, question number one. The UK government has just launched an initiative to encourage more women to start their own businesses. Now, the UK is actually one of the best places in the world to grow a business, but women are half as likely as men to be involved in starting a business up. Women in the North East are three times less likely to start a business than women in the South East. We've got a gender divide and a North-South divide going on here. I'm going to start with you, please, Rue, as a woman who, who does run her own business. What, what can we do to encourage more female entrepreneurs? When people say to me, oh, you run your own business, my immediate sort of reaction is, oh, God, no, I just do a bit of consulting. I just do some project work. I just help people out with stuff. And, and then they go, but you work with all these amazing clients and these amazing people and you travel the world and you run workshops for 600 people at a time. And then they go, oh, yeah, I do run a business. And I think that's half of it is certainly for my generation is that, you know, growing up in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, um, we were taught that you could be good, but not that you could be great. So you, even though you've worked in amazing businesses around the world, you never actually do believe that one day you would be running a business. So I think part of it is the conditioning that we grow up with. You know, it, it needs to start more in schools for there to be a more equality of conversation in schools. But then I think um, it's about finding out why people start businesses. So for me, it was about stepping off the hamster wheel in the creative industries in particular, which are relentless mm. in terms of the hours you need to put in, the commitment you need to give just to keep up with everybody else. So for me, it was about stepping out and going, how can I be in charge of my own day, my own week, my own income, my own bottom line? Um, and once you find out why people are starting businesses, is it for flexibility? Is it because you don't see the, the knickers that you want out there on sale on the high street so you invent your own bloody knickers? Whatever it is, whatever those reasons are, it's about getting to the root of those causes and then figuring out how we can support better with funding, with access to mentoring, with discipline learning in schools and in colleges and in university and really get people to think outside the box. Mm. I couldn't help but smile during that because Simone will know every single episode of the Northern Power Women podcast has a title and the title is usually a quote from someone I've interviewed or someone from the panel. I can give you now an exclusive, a world exclusive. This episode will be called Invent Your Own Knickers. Um, that is out there for now. Um, Zora, some really, really good points there, actually, from Rue. And I'm thinking about, you know, I'm a broadcaster, but I also started my own business. And to be honest, I started my own business after I had my first child and thought, goodness me, no one's ever going to employ me again. But what can I do? Quick. Oh, I'll, I'll do something. It never occurred to me beforehand as an option. I think we as women, are, we're scared of success in some ways, but we're also scared of failure. And I think that sometimes puts women off from taking that next step with... And it is that fear of risk. But also for me, there's something fundamental about the way that we in society support women to be entrepreneurs. And whether it's going into business, whether or not it's actually just working for a career in local government or in another industry, how do we support women? It's difficult to juggle children and a career to take on those responsibilities. You know, 
I'm somebody who, a long time ago, in 1991, didn't qualify for maternity leave, apparently. I hadn't been there for two years. What do you do when you're stood there and you're pregnant? What I did was I worked till I was 42 weeks pregnant, left work to go and have a baby and went back six weeks later. We shouldn't have to do that. And there are women even today who I think feel threatened when they find themselves with an employer or juggling their own business demands and then trying to manage bringing up a family at the same time. Mm. Was business, starting your own business, ever mentioned to you at school as an option? Did you ever, you know, in your careers, lectures you had, someone say, what about this? My background's slightly different because my father is Sardinian and, like many Italians, he had his own business. We did food, we had a restaurant. So I was actually brought up in the family business and I saw how demanding that was. And for me, I actually had the option of running a business. I could have taken over my father's business if I'd chosen to. I didn't want it. And I'm not sure when I look back why I didn't want it. I think I'd seen him work 24-7 and how relentless it was. But what he gave me was something about earning your own money and then being independent. Because if you're, inde- if you're financially independent, you can make choices, you have options. And that's what my father instilled in me. Whether or not that was in the family business or elsewhere, it was that sort of ethos that stood behind me. That's really interesting. And another, I know, I know people who, who listen to this podcast regularly will hear about the number of women who are really at the top of their game, who we talk to every single month, who cite their father as their major, major influence in their life. No pressure. Dad's out there, actually. But it's, it's really interesting. Um, Adam, what's your take on this? Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating subject, really, particularly for me, because actually I, when I, was, uh, I finished school and uh, went into the family business... Uh, and, and worked there from the age of 14. And actually, pretty quickly, I actually set up my own business. But I realised it was incredibly difficult um, to, to, to get that next step. And I think, for me, that's kind of one of the big challenges. So when I was thinking about this question, um, I was thinking, what are the attributes of being an entrepreneur, first of all? So for me, it's about ideas, uh, it's about confidence, and it's about the finances. Mm. Now, certainly from the first point, I don't think that women are... In fact, I would say that women are quite often more creative and innovative than men, perhaps, if we're generalising. But I think from a confidence point of view, the point Zora just made is I think that's actually potentially the nub of this, that there are more men who are overconfident. And by overconfident, overconfidence to me is somebody who blames somebody else for failure but is quite happy to take all of the reward when it goes right. And I think, again, generalising, women are probably uh, have more humility than men, so they're more likely, actually, if something doesn't go quite as well as perhaps it, it could have done, to say, it's my fault. Mm. But then also, if it goes fantastically well, to actually then say, that was just luck. And it's about taking that next step. Once you've set up that business and perhaps it is going well, great, what do you do then to actually expand that business further? Where do you get your finances from? And again, that whole notion of people will give to people who are like them and the, the predominance of men in those positions who are likely to be the, the funders behind things, are they likely to give it to people who are 
not like them. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot before on the podcast, actually. By the way, in the background, you can hear a woman doing some amazing multitasking, <laughs> being, a, being a podcast audience member and being a very hands-on good mother. So don't worry, we applaud you. Um, yeah, it's interesting. We've talked about this with, with when it comes to venture capitalists in, in, say, Silicon Valley and the fact that lots of VCs don't give their money to women because quite often it's not like as you said the person standing in front I'm getting a feeling where you want to say something else I I think for me it's it's about the support networks on a really quite emotional level but also on a very functional level so functionally yes it's about finding someone to give you advice on the finances about how to secure the finances about HR issues about operational issues all of the the stuff that you might need whether you're a single sole trader or whether you're expanding further but I think on an emotional level um, I'm nearly 50 and I'm only now seeing out in society and maybe it's because of social media that women support each other certainly in all the industries I've come up so I've come up through the oil industry the chemical industry the car industry and then went over onto the creative dark side and um, it's um, you know women have been brutal towards each other so they're waiting as I've grown up people have women have been waiting for the woman in front to trip and step over them and it's really only in the last five to seven years that I'm now seeing women celebrating each other encouraging each other offering free advice to each other offering network spaces contacts all of those sorts of things and I think that's going to make a huge difference going forwards and I was talking to my 15 year old daughter last night about this and her and her friends are having this massive debate at the moment boys and girls about the meaning of feminist And she says, none of my friends say they're feminists. And I said, well, what does that mean? Well, surely we're all equal anyway, so we just have to get on with it. If we just go around man-hating, that's on us, isn't it? And we just look weak as a result. And so I think there is a balance to the conversation going forward. Yes, of course, we want to encourage people to do more. We want to encourage women to come forward, set up businesses. But what we want to do that, what we want to do with that is on a really honest, as Zora said and as Adam said, a really honest level of, is this a good business idea? Is this likely to succeed? Is this what the market needs right now? You've got to be really brutal Mm. in those questions. So we can only be as encouraging as we want to, but if the facts don't stack up, then really all we're doing is is undermining ourselves going forwards. Very interesting, your comment about women tripping other women up, and I've heard Catelyn Moran talk about this, and, of course, she and I are similar ages, and growing up, everyone played Star Wars in the playground, so the boys could fight over who was Vader, who was Stormtroopers, who was Han Solo, who was... All the other male characters, there was only one layer. So the girls had to fight each other in order to be layer, in order to be allowed to join in. We need more layers around the table, I think, definitely. Anyone here run their own business? This is multitasking queen of the day. Uh, with You're running your business, attending a podcast, and looking after two children. Um, what made you decide that's, that's what you wanted to do? It was the flexibility for, the, for my family, but also to work at the level that I'd worked really hard to get to. And I think for women, even now, when we set up our own businesses, it's seen more as a hobby and something that to occupy us while the kids are at school, which I think that um, heightens that lack of support because there's no real support out there. It's kind of like, oh, look at her, she's, you know, 
selling cakes or making candles. I think there's still that perception. Um, so I think there's a lot of conversation that needs to go on around that. And I think what would help would actually be allowing men to be more flexible in their roles and getting them more involved in the domestic sphere so it's more equal. I think it's more about giving, getting the men into the home as much as getting women into the workplace. Do listen back to previous episodes of the Northern Power Women podcast. We've talked a lot about Swedish men and the, and the attitude in Sweden of men to childcare and domestic work and business, and it's fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you so much. Keep your comments coming in. We'd love to hear from you, as we said. Uh, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com is where you can send any responses you want, any comments, or any questions you'd like to hear tabled at a future panel discussion. That's where you need to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This is really interesting. John Marshall, I'm sure you all know he's the British ambassador to Luxembourg. You didn't need me to tell you that. Now, last week he signed what's been called the pledge in Luxembourg. He's promised he will refuse any invitation to appear on a panel that is made up only of men. Now, as a little note, in California, they're launching legislation to make it illegal for a company not to have at least one woman on the board. This is being led by men. And the question is, do men need to do more, essentially, in the fight for equality? We talk a lot about women standing up, putting our hands up and leaning in and all these other things. Is it time for men, actually, now to do all of those things? Adam, you don't represent all men. I want to make that very clear. You are one marvellous man with us here today. But what's your take on this? I think we absolutely should, and I think that's a, across everything, to be quite honest. So, you know, I think there's so much inequality across the, the board that I actually think we all have a duty, not just men, to make sure that we are able to level that playing field. Um, and I think, actually, the point that the lady at the back made there was absolutely... That was, that was where I was thinking around that exactly that same notion. It's about actually change a culture shift. It's about changing that dynamic. And I think that when I've, I've spoken to a, a couple of people, a couple of women that I know asked this question what, what do they think and actually some of the simplest seemingly answers were actually probably the most seemingly relevant and important and that was along those lines of actually being able to say well actually not expecting a woman to say to a man can you look after the kids or can you do the housework it's about a man standing up and saying I will look after I will do and actually just those simple breaking down of those kind of cultural norms I would suggest would enable that to start to change across the board. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a much longer-term thing, which I hope more men are kind of doing. So, and as I say, other, other than that, I also would like just to say that I don't think it's just about that. I think it's there's so much more in yeah. terms of inequality that we all need to do. Yeah, you're right. This isn't just about gender either, is it? It's about so many more things. It's interesting, though, you're talking about a major cultural shift and you wonder where still I hear conversations on the tram on the way to work with a bloke saying to another bloke, what are you doing this weekend? I'm babysitting. You're not babysitting. <laughs> you're with your children. Um, it's, it, and that's, that's not to denigrate the men or... But it's there. It's in our culture, isn't it? Zora, Zora what are your thoughts on this? I think that's absolutely right. And it is for me about challenging some of those cultural norms and cultural stereotypes you know it's about moving away from the little girl playing with the pram only and the little boy having the tractor it's about changing and I think it starts at schools it starts before that 
it's about just recognising that actually we're all humans and we all deserve the dignity and respect that goes with being a human. It shouldn't be about being a man or being a woman. I mean, it, it, it can be difficult, it can be challenging bringing up children, but it's an equal role. It's a, you know, we create them together, we should rear them together, and it shouldn't be gender specific. Where does it come from, I suppose, in society that caregiving is seen as a, as a lesser role, as a less important role, when surely it's the most important role because you're growing future humans? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know where it comes from, but I do think that we still live in sort of quite a patriarchal society, really. You know, and when I look back, I mean, I was, in, I was in primary school when women got equal pay in the 70s, and that was resisted, and it was resisted by the male-dominated institutions and workforces of the time. And I think we still see some of that resistance. So we do have to challenge. We do have to stand up and be shouted. Who, who I suppose, is the question here, needs to stand up and challenge? Both. I think equality is something that both men and women ought to have an interest in and ought to fight for. The most successful companies in the world have women on the boards. They're not male-only boards. We bring different skills and different qualities to the table. And the most successful workforces have both and both have an equal voice and ought to be respected as such. It's not an either-or. Yeah, it's not an either And I know, certainly, there's this, this feedback from my industry, from media, when two women appear on screen. There's quite a lot of angry people who get on social media and say, two women presenting breakfast television! This is all very well, political correctness gone mad! And, you know, it, uh, I suppose you'd kind of... My, my husband says that, that it's the dying roars of the soon-to-be-extinct dinosaurs, but who knows? Um, what's your take on this, Rue? Um, I think it's really interesting because um, I think what the ambassador and what California are doing, when I first read this question, my first reaction was, oh, for God's sake, we're talking about tokenism again. Um, And then I thought about it further and I thought, actually, this is really interesting because what it does is switch the conversation from why should women be allowed to do this, be on this board in California or be on this panel that the ambassador might be invited to be on, And actually what it does, if women are there, if that becomes the new normal, then actually it's a much harder thing to do to argue why women shouldn't be there. Mm. So it's actually quite clever, I think. And in terms of, you know, putting my marketing hat on, actually, once you get past the, oh, for God's sake, it's tokenism again, this is a really clever move because it means you've actually got to argue twice as hard to say why women shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a much easier debate to win, frankly, an immediate debate that you can win. You know, these women are here because they have these skills, these competencies, these qualifications, this emotional quotient, this financial quotient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, IQ, rather than the, uh, the converse, which at the moment we find ourselves continually and it feels sometimes bashing our heads against a brick wall, saying, but women bring this, and then they bring this, and then they bring that. And it, ultimately, the sound bites reduce it down to women are soft and fluffy, and therefore if you have them on the board, they'll bring the nice soft and fluffy things and stop people blowing up the world. And it's like, there is that, but actually there's a bigger conversation to be had that doesn't make it to the sound bites. So I think this is interesting because it flips it.
It's, I think it's still a big ask. I mean, to ask individual men to turn down opportunities, I, I think is still difficult. I was talking about this with a, a male friend of mine. He said, this is incredible, but I just imagine if I've been working, working, working really hard and I get invited to speak as an architect at an architectural panel and I think, yes, finally, my work's going to get up there. People are going to hear about me. Oh, there's no women on the panel could he turn it down? Should he be expected to turn it down? You know, the ambassador's probably at a certain role in his career where he might be able to pick and choose. So um, it's all food for thought. Yeah. Interesting, definitely. But anyone have got anything to say in the audience about this? Yes, I'm lunging towards Nikki. I'm lunging. My first lunge. lunge. Good lunge. Well, I think it's like anything if you want to change. We need men and women to help change it. And there was a lovely quote I saw this morning. I think it was a discussion that Jake Berry had, who was the Minister for Devolution, talking about this gender parity. And that 51% is the number of women that make up the world's population. And we can't ignore that. That's a great resource. It's a phenomenally talented pool of people. And in the same way that you wouldn't ignore half the sky, why would we ignore women? And, you know, everything I've heard this morning, the change has to come from us. I think we need to become more confident and not be ashamed to be confident. There's a lot of shame around it. Oh, who does she think she is? You know, that kind of stuff is indoctrinated into you from a very early age. Um, but I think similarly, I've, I've worked in some very interesting environments where um, I've been the only female around the board table. No one's passed any comment about that. And yet I have a very female prevalent team and everyone passes comment on it where are the men and we are starting to bring more men into the team Adam being one of them um, but why ask the question and I think that there is a mindset that we need to change on both sides I think it needs to come from both and changed on both Fantastic stuff. Thank you so much. Your thoughts really welcome. Do send us a tweet, please. Uh, at North Power Women is where you can find us. Time is rudely ticking on in this beautiful location of the award-winning piece. Sorry, multi-award-winning piece hall. <laughs> um, we've got one more question, though, that um, we'd love your thoughts on. Now, this week, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I don't know if you saw this in the news, installed the Mirror Challenge. Anyone here know what the Mirror Challenge is? No. I'll tell you. Basically, this is because half of the top jobs in the Foreign Office have never been held by a woman. Never. The Mirror Challenge is basically it's like a corridor of mirrors. They're portrait-sized mirrors, and they've got job titles above them all. So women are invited to pause, look in the mirror, and see sort of, you know, Secretary of State for blah, and see their own face. And this apparently is um, to let themselves imagine themselves in that role and that that role is a reality for them. Now, it's been called inspiring, terrifying... <laughs> You can't be what you can't see, so positive, but also patronising and not looking at the root of the problem. Sorry, let me start with you on this one. What do you think of this? Do you know, this is one of those really strange things where I, had, I wasn't quite sure first, what did I think about this? And then my, sort of, my first reaction was, are they saying that women aren't in those roles because they're not applying for them? And if that was true... Isn't it more about mentoring and development to give women the confidence to actually apply for those roles? And then I thought, well, if women aren't in, aren't in those roles, why is that? Is it more about the interviewer who actually has overlooked those applications from women, who doesn't offer women those appointments when the woman sat in front of them for an interview? 
Because there's so much of that bias, I think, whether it's subconscious or otherwise, when people are actually recruiting, people recruit their own type, they recruit their own sort of tribe that they're familiar with. And actually, do those mirrors tackle any of those fundamental causes of why women aren't actually at that table in the first place? And I'm not sure they do. Mm. But then another part of me thought, yes, it's a bit of fun, it's, it's a sound bite, it starts to highlight some of those issues, and if it just gets people talking and people thinking, then maybe it is actually doing some good as well. This is an interesting one, Adam. What, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I am, I am still sat firmly on the fence on this, I've got to be honest. I think on the positive side, definitely, even if it makes a difference to one person, one woman, that has got to be good. But on the other hand, I can see that... I, I, think, he, I think I'd look at it in a bit of a... If I walked down the corridor, I think I'd feel a bit uncomfortable by that, perhaps. And, and maybe we're all different. But I think what, what the real kind of underlying thought that was going through in my mind around... And I talk, we talked about it earlier. Actually, Zora's made a lot of the points, that I, the, the same kind of points I was thinking talked about confidence so this hall of mirrors may raise aspirations perhaps but what does it do to actually tackle the issue potentially of confidence why aren't people applying for those jobs already is it about confidence or overconfidence or, or vice vice versa um and those two to me absolutely go hand in hand so you aren't if you've got confidence but no aspiration what are the chances you're going to do anything and vice versa if you've got aspiration but no confidence so for me it's about tackling this at a, at a far earlier stage than just putting some mirrors up I think it needs to be again going you know really far back back into kind of early years and actually working with with people to try and tackle mm. the actual underlying issues as opposed to just thinking some mirrors will change that um, but as I say ultimately if it does have a positive impact on just one person them great that's so hard to measure isn't it one of these things i mean it's interesting no one in the room had actually heard of it so it hasn't made that many headlines i guess but uh, re your thoughts the foreign and commonwealth office if you walked into any high school today or even the majority of universities that aren't oxbridge or ivy league style universities in this country um and, and you said have you thought about a career in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office? I think you'd be laughed out of the room. It's, it, it's, a rem, it's a really essential part of modern government and, and you know, international relationships, but it's something from the dark ages for most people. It's a certain kind of person who went to a certain kind of school with a certain kind of network, who went to a certain kind of university with a certain kind of set of friends who's ended up there. And the men traditionally, and I know people who have worked there, the men traditionally have had the female support at home who trots around the world picking up after them, raising the children, hosting the guests, all of those sorts of things. Um, I've also known women that have taken those roles. And what they've actually ended up doing, these women, is doing their, the day job and doing the night job as well. And you do get to a certain point and go, there aren't enough hours in the day to apply myself this thinly and do everything at the best level possible. So I think, as Adam and Zora have said, it's, it is about the confidence, but I think this activity, this, I think it's a, it's, it trivialises 
what it takes to be confident and it isn't just what comes from within it's about a support network around you it's about knowing that there are these options for you it's about the foreign office putting in systems and um, programs that allow flexible working nannies um, job sharing potentially um, systems for stay-at-home dads that you know that work and it's it's kind of flipping everything that we're talking about out in the private sector and going how does that work for a government organization and it's so I, 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 I get why they've done this but I agree with the rest of the panel that they haven't actually got to the root causes of why they're in the place that they're in just quick show of hands here. Anyone love the mirror challenge and thinks it's brilliant? Nobody. <laughs> nobody. Um, anyone absolutely hate it? Again, nobody. So kind of a mixed bag. Everyone who's in the middle. Everyone. We're all in the middle. Yeah. You look worst place to be. In yeah. marketing's terms, that ambivalence is dead man's land. No, you don't want to be there. I won't lunge through to you, lady in the lovely blue scarf, but you did. You sort of grimaced as if to go, I don't even know what they're doing. I don't even understand it. But is that correct? Is that what you felt? I'm just going to lunge. I am lunging. <laughs> it feels quite simplified and patronising. I think that's, yes. it's just not going far enough with anything yeah. Yeah. Anyone, oh yes I'm going to lunge again I wonder if sometimes maybe the problem isn't that people don't feel confident to go for those roles but maybe the roles are wrong maybe the organisation is wrong and the way that organisations mm. and perhaps those roles could be split across several people or boards could be run differently why does one person have to be at the top for a long period of time I'm doing a l- another lunch, yes. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting what Floydie just said about the simplifying and going back to what Rue was saying about you know, going much deeper. And it just made me think about m- my niece has just graduated from St Andrews University this summer. And in the four years that she was there, she didn't meet another single person who had been to a state school. She's an incredibly bright girl, obviously. She wouldn't have gone there if she wasn't. But, you know, four years at a university, she was the only person in her peer group on her courses who'd gone through the state school sector. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to change. Everyone tweet the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, seriously, when this episode comes out, and they can hopefully hear a big cross-section of what people are thinking about their new directive. Time has run out. Thank you so much, everybody. A big round of applause for our fabulous panellists again, to Adam, to Zora, to Rue. Thank you so much, and thank you to the wonderful multi-award-winning Peace Hall here in Halifax. Brilliant stuff from our panellists in Halifax. Thank you again. Even though I'm still regretful, we couldn't get Zora to sing. Oh, well, maybe next time. Next month, we're in Manchester and we really hope to see you there. I love this interview with Nikki Chance-Thompson. She is the CEO of the Peace Hall in Halifax. She's a woman who's got a really positive attitude to big challenges and taking big risks as well. I started off by asking her how her career started. I started my career in advertising and it was more by accident than by design. Um, I thought I wanted to be a fashion buyer. Um, and then I got uh, a placement in an advertising agency um, and they offered me a job. Um, and so I worked on a brand called Tesco that at the time was fairly in the doldrums and they were looking to become number one grocery retailer. And that was our job. So I was really privileged to work on a team of phenomenal people 
and we made them number one grocery retailer. And it was a very exciting time for Tesco. Um, we opened up metros, Tesco Expresses. We had the first loyalty card. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and then I was asked to go and work on British Telecom as a completely different agency, Zenith Media, uh, who are part of Sarches. And British Telecom at the time were looking to protect themselves from a brand called Mercury. Um, so I'm going back a bit now. Um, and again, we worked with British, British Telecom to redefine their brand and to protect their market share. So I learnt a lot from some very clever people mm-hmm. uh, and I was very blessed. Um, and then I moved into the media, which was then known as the dark side by <laughs> advertising agencies. It still is. <laughs> which was a lot of fun. And we set up some radio stations, digital stations. It was the early stage of these things called digital platforms that were coming online because traditionally the internet had been a room with a, a dial-up modem uh, that you went into and it took you three hours just to send an email. Um, so, yes, I was very lucky. I kind of met um, a lot of inspirational people who saw something in me and took me under their wing and and helped me really to develop my career. Mm. But if if you'd asked me when I was 16, where do I want to be a vet? Do I want to be an astronaut? What do I want to be? Um, I, I couldn't have said that that was going to happen to me. Um, and I then moved into government and policy and research and working on major projects, regeneration, delivering big infrastructure projects. And then I'm here. So there's been some twists and turns, but... I think that the, the the thing, my strength is that I'm I'm good at diagnosing issues and problems, and importantly, once they've been diagnosed, what do we need to do to reach our objective? Um, and I found that that's been a common thread in all of the jobs that I've had. It's I can see how to get there. The secret is taking other people with you, and understanding how you can influence and change processes, systems, people to deliver an outcome that's much needed and whether that's selling trainers or selling supermarkets or building a big highway that's really needed those skills have followed me all the way along which is a really interesting way of looking at your career because listening to you there i think a lot of people might think blimey one sector to another you seem to seamlessly hop between (laughs) them when for some people it's a very very big deal to change the sector they work in and quite often we hear from people saying Oh, I'd really like to work over there, but I've got no experience of working in that sector. You're saying, yeah, but you've got skills that you can put anywhere. Is that what advice you'd give? Hone your skills and your skills can take you anywhere. Absolutely. And don't feel constrained. Just because you've been an accountant doesn't mean that you can't become a CEO. Um, It's about how you engage with people. It's about how you see things. And quite often people expect companies to think for them. And I learned fairly early on that I had to think for myself. I was in a very male-dominated environment. I saw how the men got to the top. Uh, A lot of it was social. So, you know, it's how you got on with people. It's how you engage with people. And I realised that as a woman, I, I couldn't go down the pub and drink them all under the table. I had to do something else. So I had to think about my value to an organisation and my role in it. And how might those skills enable me to progress in a different way to perhaps how, how the, uh, the, the, the men did? Um, and in terms of kind of hopping, um, I think a lot of the things that we do are about human nature. Whether we're selling something, whether we're asking people to do something, there's a human element to it. And it's that that you need to understand. And I think that's what enables you to have transferable skills. 
And where did this knowledge about yourself and those strategies, your personal strategies come from? Were they develop yourself over time? Did you have mentors? Did you have that person in your life who you could always turn to? It was a combination of things. Some of it was self-awareness and um, my blind spots. And I found mentors um, help me identify my blind spots. So what are those aspects of myself that I can't see that are stopping me from getting on or progressing? And also, what are those good elements about myself that mean that I've got the ability to progress and, and do some really different things? So I, I've been very blessed that I've had people put in my path and um, you find mentors, they just appear. And then it's having the courage to ask them to help you and actually having the humility quite often to accept that you don't know everything. You've got, and I know now at the age of 48, I know very little. <laughs> um, and that actually you learn all of the time. So I had to remain teachable. I have to continue to remain to be teachable because we, we live in a very complex and very fast changing world. Um, and so I still have mentors in my life today. Uh, most good mentors are coaches. So they're not people that tell you stuff. They're people that help you get to the right answer. And you probably know the answer, but it's having the confidence to realise it and, and take it forward. So I would say have different coaches rather than mentors for different things. Uh, I have very strong female role models that I talk to about my emotions in the workplace. Um, I then have other type of mentors that help me with... Um, areas that perhaps I haven't got the depth of understanding that I need so it's kind of more uh, competency um, and then there are others who I really admire and I think I want to be like them how did they get to that point and I ask them and I learn from them um, and so I have lots of different people that help me in lots of different ways and vice versa it's not what I get from them it's what I can give them too so I, I'm very loyal. I, um, I try and help others as much as trying to just help myself. So it's how I encourage others to come up and lift women up and, and lift people up in particular. Um, and, and actually knowing when to step away and letting people take the lead. Um, yeah, it's fun. I, lo I love coaching and mentoring as much as receiving it. it it's very rewarding. Does, has anyone ever turned you down when you've gone to them and said, will you help me? And the reason I'm asking is quite often we hear from people on the podcast who say, oh, I'm, I just, I'm, I'm too nervous about approaching a mentor. It's like asking someone on a date. Have you ever had anyone who said, no, nah, not interested, sorry? No, I haven't. Um, and may, maybe it's the way you ask and what you're asking for. I mean, obviously, if someone is very time constrained and clearly has a very busy life, you need to think about how you could work with them. Um, but for most people, they actually want to help other people and they want to share that knowledge and experience that they've had. So I can honestly say maybe I've picked the right people, but I've never had a no. Tell me about the role you do now then here at the Peace Hall in Halifax. Wow, what a job. It's a dream job, really. It, this job to me is everything that I've ever done, kind of within four walls. So it's retail, it's branding, it's uh, events, it's everything. Um, it's, it's lovely history and heritage, which I love as well. Um, so my role really is um, to build a brand, um, to manage lots of very talented people and uh, let them do a lot of that, the work as well. Um, I've got a fantastic team and together we are all highly committed, highly passionate with a very clear shared vision. We hold each other to account. 
So I would say that although I'm the chief exec in name, by nature there are lots of chief execs at the Peace Hall who are experts in what they do and I just let them be the experts. Mm. My job really is to kind of sew it all together and weave it all together to make sure that all of those really important parts are all playing to the same tune rather than working in isolation and ensuring that we're looking ahead mm. rather than just looking in front of us. So. We're very ambitious, I'm very ambitious, because I love this building um, and I can see its potential and I really want to fulfil its potential. You joined, um, you, you took on this role at what's fair to say is a really challenging time in the history of this project. The CEO had left just a couple of months before it was due to be completed. All eyes were on you, all eyes on you when you took this role on, you know, scrutiny from the council, from investors, from taxpayers, everyone was looking at you. Did you jump into this wholeheartedly or was there a bit of you thinking, what, should I do this? Because it was a huge challenge to take on. I think it's probably a bit of both, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yes, it was quite a scary position to be in. Um, but it needed to be done. And I find that when, in all of my career journey, I'm very focused on a mission. That's what's got to be accomplished. So in, in many ways, I had to just get on with it. And I really believe that the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And I strongly felt that it was the peace hall that needed the attention. It was the peace hall that needed to be the celebrity, not me. And that my job really was to stand behind it and enable it to become the superstar Mm. that it needs to become. It was really hard. It was really tough. And yes, I had many nights where I thought, what am I doing? (laughs) Is, Is this worth it? And actually the answer is yes, it was. And yes, it is. But I was supported by a great network of trustees, a great network of friends. I wasn't on my own. um, And, you know, I really thank them for that because without them, I think it would have been a really much tougher Mm. proposition. But I knew that we'd get through it. I knew it would continue to be challenging, albeit in a different way. And now I think that we can hold our head up high and say, we made it work, we're making it work. And we've, you know, the challenge now is continue to make it work. So, yes, there were times where I thought, <laughs> should I just get on the plane and go to Scandinavia, you know? But, but no, this, this place is too important, and I, and I love it so much that I just thought if I just channel all my love into it, then the right things will happen, and it did. That probably sounds a bit cheesy, but that's kind of how I felt. It was a big risk to take. Have you always taken big risks in your career? Are you the person who, who takes the risks? Yes. Um, I think that without, if you don't take risks, nothing ever happens. Um, if you look at all the great inventions, all the big game changers, what did they do? They took a risk. And it's easy to play safe, but then what are we doing? You know, I, so I, I've always taken risks, and so far, touch wood, they have, they, they've always panned out. But I've not taken on my own. I think that's the most important thing. I've always had people around me who have been on the journey of the risk-taking with me, and so we've always felt mutually supported. Mm. What did you learn from taking on the big, the big challenge of your current role? Oh, God, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about people. I've had to learn stuff I didn't know before. Um, I don't need to be an expert in all of it. I just have to know a bit of it and let the experts do their job with a bit of guidance and coaching. I think I've learned to have more confidence in myself than perhaps I used to have and to learn to let the team be the team. You know, I don't have to be like mum 
looking after the family all the time and people are grown-ups and they do the right thing with the right conditions of feeling confident, of feeling coached, of feeling that they're empowered to do things. And, and I guess I've learned to take a bit more of a step back. At the beginning, I did need to be driving it. I did need to be holding it together. But now I feel that uh, the team has formed, it's stormed, it's norming and it's just to let it play now. But yes, I learned an awful lot about myself, good and bad. And so there are some things I've dialed down and some things I've dialed up, you know, and that, that's all part of learning. You are, Nikki, and I just need to look at my screen to get this right, an adopted Haligonian. I am. Is that, that's the word, it's a word I learnt this week. That's someone from Halifax, a Haligonian. Yeah, and that's the right word, because I was using the wrong word for a long time. <laughs> no. Which doesn't bode well if you are an adopted Haligonian. Um, so I moved up here 12 years ago. My husband is from Halifax, um, and I was just absolutely intoxicated with the place. I just loved it, the scenery, everything. I felt like I'd come home. It's a very odd sensation. Um, and it's grown on me over 12 years. And um, I now know I'm a northerner because when I get on a train and it's going towards the north, I say I'm going home, not when I'm going south. Um, but I really love this area. I'm deeply committed to helping to improve it and creating equal opportunities for everybody, not just a few. Um, and so a lot of what plays out here, we do great events, music events, heritage events, everything, but there are also an awful lot of social and community events because we want everyone to feel that this is their peace hall, not just for the few that can buy tickets. Um, and, I, and I've already seen the impact of this with Square Chapel, the other levels of investment in the area. I, I've seen a confidence and an optimism in the town that perhaps wasn't there before because nobody really knew what was happening with it. And just to see that change and see people blossom and come alive at Chowdown that we've got here this weekend, you know, that for me makes everything that we did really worth it and that we continue to do worth it. You mentioned a lot of the events that have happened here and a lot of the visitors you've had and luminaries you've had. Um, Royalty paid you a visit yes, earlier on right. in the year as well. Tell me about what Prince Charles had to say to you. Oh, gosh. Um, he absolutely loved it, and he was hugely complimentary. Um, we didn't get a chance to speak much because it was a bit like run the gauntlet through all the people, and he, he clearly wanted, his Royal Highness clearly wanted to engage with, with people, and that, that was just lovely to see. But he stopped me over in a stairwell in the corner. I'll never forget this. And he said, I just want to speak to you for a moment. I just want to say that everything you're doing here is absolutely brilliant and carry on. And then we had a conversation about visionaries and how that works. And it was just lovely. It was just a moment that I'll never forget where I thought, good God, I've got a prince of the realm stopping me in the stairwell saying this is absolutely brilliant. There's no higher praise. And it meant a lot to me personally because... He has a very high bar, and I was nervous about what he thought about what we were doing, but it got the royal seal of approval, so we were very happy. Thank you again to Nikki. Now, she's not the first interviewee on this podcast who has had the royal seal of approval. We're starting to make a bit of a habit out of it. I love it. If there's someone whose story you'd love to hear, let us know. Email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Time now for Ask the Hive. It's a place where you get to ask a question and you get a whole load of advice. This month, it's about knowing which way to turn. So I'm at a bit of a careers crossroads. Um, there's a couple of jobs I'm interested in and I was just wondering whether it's best to follow my heart or my head. 
consider where you want to be longer term and which one will get you further down that road? Um, personally speaking, at the point I am in my career, I would go with my heart, but I am quite advanced in my career and I have taken head decisions, so I quite understand that. I think um, you've, you've got to think about where you want to be in eight, 12 to 18 months. Are you going to be fed up with this job or are you going to still really be enjoying it? So I, I would suggest you sort of look a little bit to the future and try and use that to give you a bit of an indicator of whether you'd go head or heart. Personally, where I am now, definitely heart. Right. I think, first of all, I would ask you to look sort of very carefully at the two options and try and pinpoint what it is that is making one of them lead with your head and one that's making you lead with your heart. I mean, I suppose instinctively, I would say, if you go with your heart, that's where your passion lies. But obviously, the head brings in other things like the practicalities and whether you need to think about, you know, timings, work, life balance, those kind of things. If you can try it and find a way of merging the two together... To me, that is always the ultimate. If you can find something that you're passionate about, but also brings in all the head things like the practicalities of work and the money you need to earn and things. But really lay your options out carefully and ultimately go with your heart. I think there's probably no right answer to that question and I would think about how to make a decision and maybe involving other people in that decision, asking for their different points of view and really kind of setting out what the pros and cons of each are and what it all means in the short, mid and long term and then don't ignore your heart but don't ignore your head either because they've got to work together (laughs) Go with your heart, don't think too much about it Thank you if you gave your advice this month, very very much appreciated Now here's our new question Can you help with this one? How do we talk to men about increasing women in leadership positions? This is a tricky one. If you've got any experience of this whatsoever, any advice you can bring, really we'd love to hear from you. So appreciate a couple of minutes of your time. You can either record a voice memo on your phone and email it to podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or just open up WhatsApp on your phone. Add the Northern Power Women podcast. We are on 079 28 387 712. That's 079 28 387 712. All you need to do is on your message screen, there's a little microphone icon. Hold that down, say what you want to say, and then when you release your finger, your message will come straight to us and so appreciate your time. If you need those details again, uh, you can rewind, of course, this podcast or head to northernpowerwomen.com. So there we go. I can't believe it. That went fast. Another month of great stories, great advice, brilliant ideas. Please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from and tell everyone you've ever met to come and have a listen. We'd so love it. Thank you. Set your alarm. Your next episode arrives on Monday, the 5th of November. I should say, remember, remember. Your next episode arrives on Monday, the 5th of November. Until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On media production for Northern Power Women. Northern Power Women.